What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. I'm Josh Hammer, and welcome back to another week of America on Trial. I hope everyone is enjoying their three-day holiday weekend. You know, officially on the governmental calendar, today is known as Washington's birthday. Informally and colloquially, it is also known as President's Day. Officially, officially, this federal holiday only marks the birthday of our great founding father, the first president of the United States, George Washington. George Washington's actual birthday is on February 22nd, so three days from now. It has been on this day, the third Monday in February, due to a statute passed in 1968 called the Uniform Monday Holiday Act. Informally, at least when I was growing up, I always referred to it as President's Day. I I only learned, maybe... I don't know, two, three, four years ago, fairly recently, that the official name for this holiday on the governmental calendar is Washington's birthday. I much prefer President's Day, to be honest with you, for the very simple reason that Abraham Lincoln was also born one week ago today on February 12th. I actually share Lincoln's birthday, and to make it even funnier, my best friend from childhood was actually born on Washington's birthday. So we were February 12th and February 22nd, respectively, and I remember all sorts of Fun childhood bickering arguments growing up as to who was the greater president between George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. So I will be referring to it as President's Day on the show. It is a day officially to acknowledge George Washington, but unofficially to acknowledge also Abraham Lincoln and perhaps many of our other great presidents of the United States as well. And isn't it quite ironic that as we were going into this three-day holiday weekend on Friday afternoon, just as we were about to usher in, the long weekend, we have this absolutely wild verdict from Justice Arthur and Gore on this very long-awaited verdict in New York State Court when it comes to the civil fraud trial against Donald Trump and the Trump Organization. We'll get to that just a little later in the show here for our deep dive. But before then, let's just do a quick survey of the state of things in our Around the Horn segment So on Friday, we also wrapped up the second day of this two-day evidentiary hearing down in Fulton County, Georgia, in the Fulton County Superior Court courtroom of Judge Scott McAfee. Thursday was the bombshell day. Thursday, the first day of the two-day hearing, for what my money is worth, that was the bombshell day of this two-day hearing. That's when you had Nathan Wade take the stand. That's when you had Fonnie Willis take the stand there. Fonnie Willis as we discussed on Friday's show, came across as a deeply unhinged, unstable, and just frankly overly emotional and crazy person. I don't really know how else to say it. I, I cannot believe for the life of me that whoever encouraged her to take the stand, if it indeed was anyone, thought that that was a good idea in retrospect after viewing the way that she conducted herself there. 
On Friday, you had Fonnie Willis's father take the stand. Fonnie Willis's nut job leftist father, who was a Black Panther back in the day, 50, 60 years ago. Allegedly, the rumor is that she was, uh, or that he was shacking up with, with Angela Davis, Fonnie Willis's father. So that is the milieu, that is the social environment in which Fonnie Willis was raised. You know, when Fonnie Willis was talking on the stand on Thursday about, oh, you know, my daddy growing up told me to keep a lot of cash on hand. I mean, hold aside how utterly ludicrous and insane a thing that is to say if you're the district attorney of a major urban county just announcing for your entire county and announcing for the entire country and the world, for that matter, that you're just keeping a ton of cash on hand. You know, if you are a robber, if you are a thief, if you are a carjacker, oh, come on into my home. I'm holding a lot of cash there. Really just insane stuff. And when she's talking about how, how was her father who was teaching her these lessons when she was growing up, well, that was her father who took the stand on Friday. He, he wasn't maybe as catastrophically bad as some of us thought he'd be. Wasn't wasn't exactly particularly good either. So th that is where things currently stand. That hearing was was supposed to be two days, and it now has been two days there. So there's going to be a, a private hearing coming up there in the chambers. It won't be televised. It's going to be a private hearing in Judge McAfee's chambers on Wednesday on some of these other misconduct allegations, all of this, again, stemming from the same underlying motion to dismiss the, the, the indictment or at least to disqualify Fonnie Willis, that motion from Trump co-defendant Michael Roman in the case there. So hopefully we'll have more information for you over the next few days when it comes to that case. I continue to believe that there is just simply no way that Fonnie Willis can stay on this case after everything that we learned last week on top of everything that we already knew. More to come on that case hopefully soon. When it comes to Jack Smith's lesser discussed federal case, the classified documents case in Mar-a-Lago, looking at our legal calendar, we have a big deadline coming up this Thursday, which looks like a final deadline for pretrial motions, or at least a major deadline for pretrial motions, or there's going to be a bevy of motions that are due this Thursday, so we'll start to get a better sense as to how that pretrial framework and timeline is going to work out there on the classified documents case starting this Thursday, February 22nd, Washington's actual birthday, by the way. As a reminder, the actual start date for that case there in Judge Aileen Cannon's federal court in southern Florida, the actual trial state start date is slated for Monday, May 20th. That, of course, could change. This, to me, is, is one of the less dangerous trials for Trump for the very simple reason that there's a very strong likelihood of a hung jury. Given the jury pool there, this jurisdiction includes both blue and red areas. It is a federal court, so a little less inherently prone to bias than a, than a state court might be. Now, having said that, Trump did allegedly, according to prosecutors, openly defy a grand jury subpoena and things like that. So prosecutors will have to prove all that beyond a reasonable doubt. But based simply on the nature of the beast at a very structural level, I would be a little less scared there for Trump. And then additionally for Donald Trump, when it comes to both of his current litigations in Washington, D.C., we are waiting for the Supreme Court on both counts. So we are currently waiting for the Supreme Court of the United States when it comes to Trump's petition to stay the D.C. Circuit's finding that he is not immune from, from suit when it comes to Jack Smith's sprawling 2020 election-related federal probe there, where we will hopefully get a, a, a ruling on that from the Supreme Court justice at some point over the next week, week or two. There's going to be a status conference 
this Friday at 1.30 p.m. in the D.C. District Court. That's Judge Tanya Chutkin's courtroom to basically just try to figure out a possible timeline for getting a trial start date there back on the calendar when it comes to Trump's Jack Smith prosecution there in D.C., But the timeline is very difficult to assess at this stage before we hear from the Supreme Court justice as to what they are going to do. So recall that what they could do is they could simply stay that denial of immunity and then kick it down back to the D.C. Circuit, where Trump could then appeal to the full so-called en banc court of of all 11 judges at the D.C. Circuit. Or the justices, if they are so inclined, could simply turn this petition for a stay into a substantive petition for a writ of cert and thereby expedite the hearing of this case on the underlying constitutional merits as to whether Article 2 of the Constitution and the so-called executive power would necessarily preclude this prosecution from Jack Smith of actions that Donald Trump took while he was president of the United States. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. So a lot to come there on the Supreme Court. And then we're also waiting for the Supreme Court finally when it comes to this other case that we heard the oral argument for about a week and a half ago, the Trump versus Anderson case. This is the question of ballot access, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, so-called insurrection clause case that we heard that argument for the great attorney, Jonathan Mitchell, my old friend who did an exceptional job arguing on behalf of Donald Trump at the U.S. Supreme Court. I fully anticipate that ruling to be either unanimous 9-0 to zero, or at a bare minimum 8-1, to one. the only relevant question being whether Justice Sonia Sotomayor wants to solidify her quote-unquote resistance bona fides by being the solo dissenter there and getting all those MSNBC clicks and the New York Times editorial board love and things like that. I do ultimately predict that case is probably going to come out 9-0, to zero, especially given the fairly aggressive nature of the questioning by Sotomayor's other two liberal colleagues on the court, Elena Kagan and Ketanji Brown-Jackson, both of whom seemed absolutely adamant that this is a very, very, very bad idea to start going down this road of having state officials, state administrators, state judges all across the country just on a whim, on an ad hoc case-by-case basis, just assessing themselves that a president of the United States is disqualified and thereby then disqualifying him or her 
from the ballot because they quote unquote engaged in insurrection or aided or abetted an insurrection. It's it, it's dangerous stuff. So that that that's going to come down in Trump's favor. It's just a question of the exact timeline. Okay, so with all of that said, we move to today's deep dive, which, as mentioned earlier, is going to be this harrowing, harrowing and in many ways viscerally shocking to the core finding that we heard from Justice Arthur and Goron as we were getting ready to enter this three-day holiday weekend on Friday afternoon. So as a reminder there, we to an extent knew what was going to happen, and Goron had previously held in what seemed to many of us like a major lapse of judgment, a major ethical breach, a possibly illegal conduct. I don't really know the rules to be totally transparent of New York trial procedure well enough to say I'm barred in Texas, not in New York, but it struck many of us as bizarre at, at a bare, bare minimum that Justice Angoran had previously announced, had held that Trump had actually violated, that Donald Trump had actually violated the underlying f- business fraud statute in New York State struck many of us as gratuitous, as the kind of thing that you wouldn't necessarily say until it's time to actually put your thoughts into a formal written opinion and announce your findings to the entire court. Nonetheless, he had done that at an earlier juncture in these proceedings there. So the only question was, what was the number going to be and what, in addition possibly to the top-line number, were they going to find? So the top line number is $355 million in damages. Holy moly. That's to Donald Trump and to the Trump organization. Insane. I don't know how much else to say about it. Just utterly insane. And then you had an additional damage of $4 million apiece in personal liability for both Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr., and then an additional $1 million in liability for Alan Weisselberg, the longtime CFO of the Trump Organization, who is actually currently in negotiations with the prosecutor there in New York, Alvin Bragg, over possible allegations that, that he perjured himself during his testimonies leading up to this finding in the civil fraud trial in the, in the Arthur and Goron case. And it's actually even worse than that. It's not just those damages numbers there. So according to the opinion here, Justice Ngoron barred Donald Trump from serving as serving as an officer in any New York corporation for three years, and then additionally barred Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. from serving as a corporate officer or director for two years. And then there are severe limitations as to what kind of loans they can take out from New York financial institutions. It's really just utterly harrowing stuff. It is shocking. It is shocking stuff there. And the key points here, there are a few key points here. One is you have to think about who the alleged underlying victims are. The alleged underlying victims here are very sophisticated financial institutions, very sophisticated financial counterparties. Now, It's true that based on the testimony that some of them said according to their interviews with investigators, according to what they said trial, some of them did maintain that the Trump organization had inflated their their values. So to give just just one example of what Justice Ngoron held, apparently Donald Trump exaggerated the square footage of his Trump Tower triplex. Apparently it is roughly 11,000 square feet, which is still pretty freaking large, if you ask me. Apparently, they exaggerated that to 30,000 feet when it comes to 
their uh, their applications for loans and thereby the appraising their the value of their properties. That is basically what was going on this trial. So to give you just one example here, you had a guy by the name of Donald Bender, who was an accountant at a financial institution called Mazers. He helped draw up some of the SFCs, the statements of financial conditions that ultimately went into the approved loans to the Trump organization. And according to what Donald Bender, this accountant at Mazers, told investigators, he told them, quote, that the Trump organization had withheld records such as appraisals that Mazers, this company, had requested. And then Donald Bender also, quote, made clear that Mazers would not have issued the SFC statements of financial condition if it had known. That is what the financial counterparties are are saying there. And in, in a similar sort of situation, you have a guy by the name of Nicholas Hay, who was formerly a managing director of Deutsche Bank's private wealth management division. He signed off on loans to the Trump organization, and he relied on Donald Trump's SFC, Statements of Financial Condition, from the year 2011. And he, quote, assumed that the representations of value of the assets and liabilities were broadly accurate, so says Justice and Goran. And Nicholas Hay, this guy from Deutsche Bank, the high-ranking managing director, says that he relied on Mr. Trump's, quote, personal guarantee as the reason for favorable pricing of the loan. So that is the allegation. The allegation is that is these sophisticated counterparties, these banks, wealth management firms, and so forth, that are the actual parties that, that were harmed here. Well, first of all, there, there actually really was no financial victim. And in fact, Deutsche Bank actually made money. Deutsche Bank literally made money on its loans to the Trump organizations. Deutsche Bank profited from the very loans that Titch James and the New York State Attorney General's office was actually weaponizing to pursue these charges, to, to pursue this vindictive fraud suit against Trump and the Trump organization. In fact, according to what came out of trial, Deutsche Bank even gave a, quote, haircut to the numbers that Donald Trump provided on behalf of the Trump organization. In other words, they actually took the appraised value and then took it down a little notch to make sure that they were accounting, that they were actually even internally accounting for any possible puffery, for any possible overinflation of assets there. And more generally speaking, you know, these companies have very sophisticated appraisals. Like Deutsche Bank, are you kidding me? A major bank. I mean, I remember back when I was in college and half my friends are going to work on Wall Street. Deutsche Bank was recruiting at institutions like Duke where I went to college. These people are sophisticated. Like, like they are fully capable of engaging in their own X, Y, Zs and nitty gritty and cross the Ts and dot the Is when it comes to making sure that they are appraising property correctly for purposes of giving out loans and interest rates. It's, it's really, really crazy stuff there. And it, it's so crazy, in fact, that you have the Wall Street Journal editorial board in an editorial out over the weekend, and you know, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial board is no bastion of Trumpism, to put it mildly here. They call this remedy, they call this ruling from Justice Arthur and Gore, and they said, quote, this remedy is like using a hellfire missile to annihilate a shoplifter. Pretty crazy stuff. And the, the key point, even addition to that, which we've explained on this show numerous times, but we'll reiterate here. Here's the next paragraph from the Wall Street Journal editorial board. It's really quite juicy. They write, quote, More troubling is that this case was brought by New York Attorney General Tish James, a Democrat who campaigned for office promising to find Mr. Trump guilty of something. This is choosing a target and then hunting for something to charge him with, which is an abuse of the law. 
Mr. Trump isn't guaranteed a jury trial here, the judge says, because of the kind of case it is. But that's another reason voters are unlikely to hold this judgment against him as he campaigns for the White House. So it's this notion that you have these third-party victims, quote-unquote victims, these very sophisticated, very wealthy banks, companies like Deutsche Bank, who are really not victims. Again, Deutsche Bank profited. They literally profited from their loans to the Trump organization. And yet Tish James is so purportedly aggrieved on their behalf that she made it a campaign promise to sue the Trump organization and Donald Trump, obviously, in a personal capacity because she's so peeved there. It's just total, total garbage banana republic stuff. I don't know how else to say it. And Goron also just has ridiculously colorful and over-the-top language in the course of this 92-page opinion, one of the lines that is getting a lot of the play over this three-day holiday weekend. Is, and Goron writes, quote, he's speaking here about Donald Trump and his sons. He writes, quote, their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological. They are accused only of inflating asset values to make more money. The documents prove this over and over again. As we've explained on this show, if you are the CEO looking to New York State possibly to put your business, or if you are in venture capital trying to figure out where to base your company when it comes to loans or looking at possible entrepreneurs there in New York State, or heck, if you are a prospective entrepreneur yourself in New York State thinking of trying to become the next Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg operating out of your garage there in New York City, your upstate New York or anywhere, why in the world would you operate or engage in any kind of risky business activity there in New York State if this is what the power of the state can be used by. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Again, this is not a quote-unquote prosecution. It's a third-party civil suit, a deeply politicized and tangentious one. But the power of the state used to try to bar someone like Trump who made his whole career and fortune there in New York State to fine him hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to prevent him from being an officer of a corporation in New York State and to bar him from operating for years is banana republic third world commie bullcrap. That is exactly what this is. It is part and parcel of the sprawling national effort by the Democrat media complex to get him and defeat him by any means necessary this fall whether it is trying to get him to pay hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in damages, which he likely does not have simply in cash lying around. He'll have to do X, Y, Z things when it comes to business structure, possible bankruptcy, loans, who knows, to pay this off, whether it is that, whether it is literally sending him to jail, that is the whole point of the prosecutions, whether it is denying him ballot access, that is the Trump versus Anderson case, the question out of Colorado that we heard in the Supreme Court a week and a half ago. All of these are various data points in this sprawling effort to defeat this man by any means necessary. It is absolutely disgraceful stuff. Obviously, Donald Trump is going to get his shot at appeal there. The silver lining and the solace with which I will leave you is that the appellate courts there in New York State tend to be a little more sane, a little more rational than the trial courts there. Certainly, certainly, we can only hope for a more just ruling at a barest of bare minimums, a severe curtailing of this ridiculous gratuitous number in terms of the top line level of damages and ideally perhaps also a limiting if not outright elimination of the amount of years that Trump and his sons are barred from serving as directors and officers of, of corporations there in New York State. That's really what we should be hoping for on appeal. 